Good morning. Uh, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said this to his people. He said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As Aaron was just praying, we live in a busy culture. How many of you would say that your burden of culture is heavy? Ever feel the weight? Okay. Here's what we're seeing through the lens of John Mark in his gospel, the gospel of Mark. We're seeing some really important things in scripture as we witness the ministry of Jesus through his eyes. What we're seeing is he is, Jesus is proving for himself and Mark is making it a narrative so that we don't miss that Jesus has authority over everything. His authority over the enemy, he's got authority over illness, he's got authority over darkness, over sin, and as we celebrated last week, even the grave. So he's showing his authority over all. He has shown that his intent, even though they had interpreted that God hated the sinner, that his intent was that he would come and love the sinner and spend time with him. And he proved by proving himself and fulfilling over 300 messianic prophecies. I think we looked at that last week. Over 300 messianic prophecies that he, in fact, was the one. That he's showing that he himself is God. And if they missed all of that, then today in this scripture that we're going to look at at the end of Mark 2 and beginning of Mark 3, he just flat out tells them, I am God. He just flat tells them. And they, they receive it about as well as we would receive someone saying that they were the Messiah today. You know, if someone stood up in our service and said, I'm the Messiah, we'd all what? Turn our backs, right? We wouldn't receive that. And so he is, he is professing that he is Jesus and that he is Messiah. But they reject it because he is claiming what they interpret as blasphemy. Though he says... If you'll just receive this truth, as if I haven't proven it already, if you'll just receive these words, you will find true rest. You'll find rest in me, true rest for your souls, if you'll just cling to this fact. Mark Buchanan writes it like this. He says, most things we need to be most fully alive never come in busyness. Never come in a culture like theirs or a culture like ours, but rather they grow in rest. And this is not what he is saying. He's not saying that we just pause and stop life. What he's saying is that we have to practice Sabbath. We have to practice a day, but that we practice it in the person of Jesus. If we place all of our trust in our practices, it is far less costly immediately, far more costly eternally. But if we put all of our trust in our practices immediately, far less costly in the immediate than placing our trust wholly in the person of Jesus. And that's what he's asking us to look at as he gets to the scripture. That's what Mark has been leading us to in his gospel. And that's going to be our presence for today. I have entitled the sermon, Grief Versus Grace. And you're going to see why. Here it is. From Mark 2.23, it says, On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? 
how we entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Then Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand to stand before us. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, for he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts, he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. First point I want to make today is this. Jesus is grieved in three ways today, and he explains that to us through this text. He's grieved by their lack of knowledge. He is grieved by their lack of knowledge. Better said, he's Grieved by their lack of knowledge of God's actual intent. Let me say it that way. It's just a little longer to say it this way. What the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of is not not honoring the day of rest. Okay, That's not what their accusation is. Their accusation is that he has claimed to be Lord over the Sabbath. And so they immediately in their hearts turn into blasphemy. Why? Because Lord over the Sabbath means that he is sovereign over the Sabbath. Their entire infrastructure of Judaism, all the laws and all that we've been talking about that they had to keep in practice was all culminated in the Sabbath. If Sabbatarianism was the most important part of all of their religion. So when Jesus says, I am Lord even over the Sabbath, he's going, I am God. And they're not too kindly to it. They don't take kindly to that. They don't like it. So what they, what they do is because he's blaspheming, they're thinking of a way that they can unearth him, that they can reveal that he's actually a blasphemer, that it is not true, even though that they see the power and authority that he has over all these things that are dark, that they have no power over, even though he preaches with authority, even though that he's fulfilling all these biblical prophecies that, they'd be, that they would know and be assured of. They in their pride and arrogance are unwilling to accept this truth. So what he says is this. As they ask, why are, your, why are your disciples doing what's unlawful? Okay, so Jesus turns and he asks them about an example that comes from 1 Samuel 21. And it's an example that they would be familiar with. He speaks to their patriarch, David. Okay, now what do we know about David? We know that he was a king. We know they slayed a giant. But what do we know that everyone in Judaic history and in Christian history says of David? That he had a heart, what? After God's. That's right. It was prophesied that he would sit on the throne because he had a heart like God's. So Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter. By lifting the name David, whom they know that the Messiah will come through his line. And he's a patriarch of their faith. They have the Davidic covenant that they're waiting on for the Messiah to come and fulfill. And so he goes straight to the heart of the matter by looking at 1 Samuel 21. He goes, don't you remember when David was hungry on the Sabbath and he how he entered the temple and he went in and he and his companions with him, though they were hungry... 
It was unlawful for them to eat of the bread of presence, but because they were hungry, they filled themselves. They sought sustenance. And the priests there allowed it, even though that was unlawful. Now, these priests here would know this. They would know this history. They would know this story. They would know about the priests, and they would know about their honored David practicing what was unlawful. And they say nothing. It's just in history. But they have accusation against Jesus. See, what Jesus is simultaneously trying to teach is this. If you honor David and you know his position in history and you know what has been prophesied about David, if you hold him in high regard and you hold him in high regard because he had a heart after God's and this man had a heart, having a heart after God broke what was lawful. Let me say it better. Broke what you interpreted and your impositions based on your interpretation of the law. If he broke that, why are you accusing me? Hear that? So he is turning and saying, again, your issue's not with Sabbath. Your issue is with me. Your issue's not with how I lead my disciples because the person that you lift up in high regard led his companions, led his disciples to break law. Your issue is not with the practice. Your issue is with the person. And today, church, I got to ask us if we, if he is grieved by their lack of knowledge of the intent of God, and he is grieved because they place more trust in their practices than they do the person of Jesus, can we just take a moment and self-reflect and introspectively ask the question, does God ever look at us and go, you put more trust in your practices? No? Just, okay, just me this morning. Do we ever ask God to search and know our heart and ask, God, am I more bent on the practices that I have come to know and trust? Am I, am I become very knowledgeable about the thing that is you, but I am not trusting fully the, the person of Jesus? Am I not following you with a heart like David's, a heart like Jesus that would even cause me to break practice if need because you desire for me to come and find rest and fulfillment. I want to read from a devotional that I've been reading uh, lately. It's actually quite brilliant. And the author wrote something here. He said this, wounded hearts, wound hearts. Listen closely. If a man lives with an undercurrent of mistrust in the Father in his deep masculine heart, then becoming the beloved Son will be unattainable. Walking with the Father will be impossible. And fighting for the kingdom will not go well. This is where man's many ministries fall, woefully short of the mark that was intended. Their default is to start with training men on what to do or what not to do and how to live. In other words, they focus on men's behavior rather than on redeeming and reworking the foundation of who men are and who God is. If they do address the who you are, it is usually with a list of biblical truths to memorize or paragraphs of character traits to which we should all aspire Still, behavior modification. Not all of this is wrong. This is good. But it is ill-timed. 
and therefore not helpful. There is a time for such an education, but learning about space does not make you an astronaut. Reading about the ocean does not make one a sailor. Thus, memorizing tips and techniques on behavior will not help a man to become holy. It puts the proverbial heart cart before the horse. Hello? We've got to set the horse back out in front, beginning with what the heart of God is really like. Our greatest obstacle to becoming beloved sons and daughters may well be the lies we've believed about our Heavenly Father and the belief that He is anything other than good. This is what Jesus is trying to share with us in, in saying, come to me in Matthew 11, and what He's saying here when they accuse on the Sabbath, and He challenges their Sabbatarianism. He is not challenging the law given by God. He's not challenging the character or heart of God. He is living and offering grace. There was this old argument when I was in seminary. There was law versus grace, grace versus law. Until I met a professor who finally said it right for me. It was this. There is no argument. They do not fight against one another. Law was grace. Because in a time when we didn't know, he gave us an understanding of the things he never struggled with when we are bound in a life of bondage and sin. But in Jesus, he has that law completely fulfilled because of the grace and love that's evident in Jesus. One who would love so much, he'd lay down his life for you and for me. Hello? One who was completely selfless. And one who could relieve the suffocating bondage that we all have in a sinful world. One of deceit. But also one that could relieve the weight of a law system and ritualistic practices religiously that for the people could never be kept. I don't know about you, but how many of you are thankful for grace? Anyone here ever messed up at least once, just once? And how many of you have ever messed up religiously one time? Just once. Just a cup, a few of us did that once. I appreciate your honesty. But here's the thing. The love of Jesus and grace of Jesus covered that because the other thing that grieves Jesus' heart here that is evident is that they ha- he has a grief over their lack of compassion. What are the two examples given here in, the, the, in this change of chapter? By the way, there was no break in the original manuscript. This is one dialogue. So he moves from specifically this challenge about eating straight to the challenge of the shriveled hand. When you see the challenge about eating, it's a challenge of sustenance. And Jesus says, look, if your body is fatigued and tired, it requires food and water. So eat, feast. One of the biggest practices in Sabbath is feasting. But see, the the religious leaders taught something opposite. They, in fact, taught a completely different viewpoint. They had something right, and that was this, that it required self-denial. In order to follow Jesus, said, you cannot be my disciple unless you what? Daily take up your cross and follow me. So there's self-denial, but not in Sabbath. Sabbath is a place of rest. It should be a place of feasting. It's kind of like last week we talked about. They said, why why would my disciples fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is a time of celebration. This is a time of feasting. That we should find ourselves finding substance and filling our lives, not only with the promises of God and all of his bounty, but celebrating with those that we love. Spend time in this. And so he's not challenging 
he's not challenging the law of God or the heart of God or the intent of God, the grace of God. What he's challenging is the fact that religious leaders were treating Sabbath as if it were a time of deprivation. In fact, the longer the list of deprivations specifically on Sabbath, the more holy you were. That sound fun? It was for them, right? They would tell the people that if you're guilty of one law, you're guilty of what? The entire thing. And if there were a laundry list of deprivations that made them more holy, how could the people ever measure up? That's weighty. And not only did the bondage of sin now choke them, they had this on top of them. And Jesus said, come to me, all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That I am your Sabbath from the law and from sin. I have come. And what breaks his heart is these religious leaders have a lack of compassion. For people who are coming trying to find rest on their day of rest, on their Sabbath, he, he, he argues that his disciples feed themselves when their body requires it. He argues that a man who is shriveled in hand, handicapped. How many of you can imagine walking through life with one hand? Let us just, for the sake of argument, let's just say that would make things probably twice as hard. At least cause a little extra effort on our part, Right? So he, it says again, that he perceives their thoughts because it doesn't say they say anything, but it says they wait and they watch to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that he might, they might accuse him. And Jesus immediately calls the man who's walked into the synagogue, the place of meeting, the place where he is as a rabbi able to teach, and he calls and says, stand before us. Knowing what is in their heart, he says, stand before us. He asks a question, is it better to do good or evil? On the Sabbath. On the day of rest, is it better to offer life or offer death? If on this day of rest, this man can find rest from all his double workings because he is handicapped and one-handed. If I have the authority and the power to heal him on the day of rest, if I can offer this man rest and I don't, which is actually sin? So, it says, as he looked at them, grieved in his heart with a righteous anger for their lack of compassion, he said, stretch out your hand. Why? Because I came for those that were ostracized by society. Because this man with a shriveled hand would have been. This man with a shriveled hand would have been considered by them, taught by them, a sinner, stricken by God. He had done something at some point to offend God. Otherwise, he wouldn't walk around with his impaired nature. And so anything he had earned because of his impaired nature was on him because blessing brought blessing and cursing brought cursing. So he must have done something. So the mark of God was upon him, and when he'd walk into the marketplace, he must yell unclean, because if he were to bump someone else, the hatred of God may be passed from him to that person. They may miss out on the favor of God, so they avoid him like the plague, causing him not only societally, like ostracized in society, but just physically to work twice as hard as anyone else in the room. And Jesus goes, I want this man to have rest. I want this man to know that God loves him 
God is present with him, that God has restored that which was broken and taken away because of sin. And I want him to find the ability to be accepted, not only by me, but by his people. Now, which one do you and I want to sign up for? Jesus is brokenhearted and grieved by their lack of compassion. The religious leaders who had memorized the entire Old Testament, these men who are accusing him, knew the entire Old Testament from front to cover, word for word. They knew the very story that he brought up about David. You deny rest when you deny sustenance. You deny rest when you deny the healing and deliverance here. Jesus simply desires to help those who are in need. And he's not afraid of the apparent setup that is obvious by the religious leaders standing ready to accuse him. The last thing that grieves him, and that's why he looks at them with righteous anger, it's what causes him later at the end of his ministry and the beginning of his ministry, bookended, to flip over the money tables and to charge premeditatedly with a whip that he had crafted into the temple. It's because he is grieved by their lack of teachability. He is grieved not only by their lack of knowledge of God's intent, he's grieved by their lack of compassion, he is also grieved by their own lacking teachability. Their inability to see things for, as they actually are. That in their pride and arrogance, they stand apart and go, no, you are trying to usurp our authority. That's the thing that offends us. You can claim to be God. That just gives us more fire to take you down. We're not going to receive that truth, even though everything about you fulfills the thing that we have studied and memorized. But we, we do not like that you step in and thus we have to take a step back. We don't like that you seek to usurp our authority. So in our pride and arrogance, we're a little stiff-necked. Do you remember how uh, Stephen spoke at his martyrdom in Acts 7.51? He said, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, like a wall between your heart and mind. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did before you. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have watched before someone resist the clear and obvious move of God in their lives? Anyone ever watched God do and be gracious and give and heal and deliver and people just Heisman that thing? Would we be a people that the Lord would look at and say, due to your lack of teachability, I have no other... No other place to put you than in the quantified category of stiff-necked. You see, throughout his ministry, it was funny to watch people, even religious leaders, I'm going to mention three, come to Jesus. Nicodemus and John 3 snuck off in the middle of the night, a member of the Sanhedrin, just so, just so no one else, a Pharisee himself, no one would see him inquiring of Jesus. He goes out in the dark to seek Jesus, never asks a question. Never says anything, but again, Jesus perceives in his heart why he's come in the middle of the night because he can't be seen asking Jesus in broad daylight. Why would that be? It may mean that he's a given Jesus' authority over him, that what Jesus has to say might actually have merit, so he can't let the people see this. He can't let his brothers who, in religious, in really, his religious leaders, that was coming out. 
He can't see or be seen questioning. So he shows up to Jesus in the darkness and Jesus just says, you must be born again. Well, how can a man enter the womb again? How can I be born again? Don't play coy. You came in the middle of the night because you know what you seek. If someone wants eternal life, someone wants peace with God for eternity, they must be born again. When it was the rich young ruler, Mark 10, he, he came to Jesus. He actually said, good teacher. Jesus turned and said, why did you call me good? Because the word that he used in Hebrew actually meant God. Why did you call me God just now? Unless the Holy Spirit has already revealed to you who I actually am. And he said, what must I have? What must I do to have eternal life? He said, keep the commandments. I've done all this. I'm a master in the law. I'm a Pharisee. I've done this perfectly. Okay, sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Come after me. And it says that he went away brokenhearted because of his possessions. Listen, I, I think we'd never give this enough. It says Jesus looked at him, loved him, said, sell all that you have, come after me. We missed that part where he said loved him. We kind of breeze over it. I think that Jesus was far more brokenhearted in this story than the rich young ruler. Why? Because someone who he had designed in his image before the foundation of the world was coming to the point of receiving him actually knew to call him God, actually knew to call him by the name that Jesus had assumed himself, could only be revealed by the Holy Spirit, and he won't come. How brokenhearted was Jesus in this moment? Everything he, this is why he came. Everything that he was doing was to be in relation with this one man. If there were only, how many of you ever heard that before? If it was just you, he still would have done it. And he turns his back and walks away. And then Joseph of Arimathea, which I, I really like this. We read this last week. A member of the Sanhedrin himself, which was their supreme court. High ruling body, you only got off by dying. It was the highest that one could be esteemed in Judaism. Not stiff-necked. Actually begged for Jesus' body. Maybe in an act of brokenness. In an act of fellowship, since I did this, can I bury him? How much, how much rejection from man did he just bring upon himself by that very act and going down in black and white in history for doing so? Hebrews 13.5 says, So you can boldly say with confidence, you don't have to fear what man will do unto you because the Lord is your helper. He will be with you, never break a promise to you, never leave you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you can boldly say with confidence, you don't have to be afraid of what man will do unto you. I am here. I will help. How much, how much did Joseph of Arimathea have to lose in asking for the body of Jesus? Let me tell you, he had everything to lose. Everything. All status, all wealth, all glory. He was willing to have his authority usurped because when the Roman centurion saw the body breathe its last and the earthquake happened, the veil torn, surely this was, this man was the son of God. I think Joseph of Arimathea trusted that too. Do you? Do I? 
Do we truly believe that, that this man is worth rejecting the praise of everyone else around us in order to please him, honor him, and receive his? Do we trust that it's worth putting our, all our chips on the table like trusting the person of Jesus more than the practices? Because here's the point. The practices may cost us little immediately. A lot of people are practicing. Even in their day, they were practicing. But it cost them eternity. Jesus didn't die that we would just have life and life weighed down by the law or life choked out by the bondage of sin. Jesus died that we might have life and have it more, say it with me, abundantly. A man walking around with a shriveled hand, whether he comes to Jesus on Sabbath or any other day of the week, until Jesus delivers him, he's not living abundant life. Who here has been delivered? Who here needs to be delivered? And who here like me, even though I've been delivered and I trust with my day-to-day practices, maybe showing a little bit too much trust in my practices, more so than I am the heart of God, I grieve his very spirit. Maybe I mess up just a little bit, just once. How many of us this morning are accepting of the grace of God? Or would we rather continue to grieve his spirit by our lack of choosing grace? Church, I don't believe that Jesus died that we would continue to grieve his spirit because we hold to our practices or our knowledge or our lack of compassion or This is the biggest, are we teachable? I think God died, came into this world, gave himself so that we could truly be free. That's what we celebrated last week. That's what we celebrate this week. And this morning, I just want you to know that when he said daily take up your cross and follow me, that's exactly what he meant. We all have a tendency to go back to our old ways. All have a tendency to go back to finding more trust in the practices that we have been taught. Do this and don't do this as if that makes us holy. The only work that made us righteous, the only thing that made us holy was his work on the cross. Amen. So this morning we come, Father, and we turn and we trust you. Father, this morning, we don't desire to grieve your heart. Desire, Father, this morning to live in the grace that's evident in Jesus alone. Father, may we be a people willing to, in obedience, turn right now and hear you speak to us. May we be a people willing, Father, to do more than appease you. Let's stop that. Let's stop the appeasing that ultimately leads to grieving him. Father, let us find your stirring in our heart. Lead us to leave our seat. Pray for those in bondage. Kneel at your altar. Meet at your table. Father, may we please you as we respond seeking to do whatever you ask.